Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Exclusivity, elitism, unwavering loyalty, and a dash of mystery. These are a few of the key ingredients in the creation and endurance of a secret society. These organizations have been operating among us for centuries, under the radar, beneath our gaze, though every so often their activities come to light, exposing a glimpse of their inner workings. Secret societies and their more nefarious cousin, cults, fascinate and intrigue us. Join us as we reveal the structure and influence of today's cults with Dr. Yanya Lalich and their devastating impact on those they ensnare. Let's lay bare the clandestine and open the doors of secret societies. You love that television series, The Gilmore Girls, right, Walker? I do. Do you remember the motto of the Life and Death Brigade, In Omnia Paratus? I certainly do. It means ready for all things. It was first depicted on the show during an initiation into the secret society. That's right. And apparently the Life and Death Brigade was based on the very real secret society called Skull and Bones, or sometimes the Order of the Brotherhood of Death, founded in 1832 at Yale University. It is actually regarded as having powerful and bonded alumni, and a lot of conspiracy theories about world domination involve them. Some even think that that secret society is a branch of the Illuminati. Now, there is a secret but not-so-secret society for you. Wow. So what is a secret society? How do we define one? Well, that's a really good question. There are different opinions as to what defines a secret society, but to put it simply, the Collins Dictionary definition is a society or organization that conceals its rights, activities, etc. from those who are not members. Okay, that seems pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It won't surprise you either to hear that secret societies are usually very selective about who is allowed to become a member, and often there is a formal ritual of initiation that involves taking vows or even secret handshakes. Do you remember Fred Flintstone and the Loyal Order of the Water Buffaloes, Walker? I certainly do. It was a classic secret society, though a spoof. They even had a secret password. Do you remember what it was? Oh, God, Harris, you've got me. I don't. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious, but I remembered this even from my childhood in the 70s. It's ack, ack, adak. There you go. I know. Really critical information. <laughs> Maybe we need a secret password or handshake at a home and abroad. Well, I was just thinking the exact mm -hmm. same thing. You got to work on that. <laughs> that reminds me of that movie, Fight Club. You know where they said the first rule of Fight Club you do not talk about Fight Club. Second rule of Fight Club, you do not talk about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. Secrecy and exclusivity is the name of the game. It sure is. And I got to say, you were really fierce saying that. Thank Walker. you. you were did I scare you? You did. You scared me a little bit over <laughs> you here. you fight me? <laughs> First rule, no fighting. <laughs> Alan Axelrod, author of the International Encyclopedia of Secret Societies and Fraternal Orders, defines a secret society as an organization which is exclusive, claims to own special secrets, and shows a strong inclination to favor its members. Historian Richard B. Spence of the University of Idaho goes even further to say that often these societies require an oath of secrecy and allegiance to join. Secret societies often promise superior status or knowledge to their members, and very often membership is in some way restrictive, such as by race, sex, religious affiliation, or they are just invitation only. Just like the water buffaloes, they were men only. Adam Parfrey, the author of Ritual America, a book about the underground cultures in America, notes that some service-oriented organizations like the Lions or the Elks have a great deal of secret ritual within its structure. Rotary and Kiwanis, less so, but these organizations, like the Masons, require oaths of allegiance. No oath, no membership. Well, that's pretty clear. So it's a real commitment, but some of these organizations don't seem so secretive at all and are pretty visible in society. Mm -hmm. What is interesting, though, is that they share some common characteristics of truly more secretive organizations. 
Secret societies frequently play out on the screen in films such as in the movie Fight Club, as I quoted from earlier, Mm -hmm. but also films like Dead Poets Society, The Da Vinci Code, and Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, to name just a few. Often fraternities and sororities as well are presented in books and film as secret societies, likely because you need to be chosen for membership, and a process of initiation typically occurs to prove your dedication to the group. Clearly, the general public finds the topic intriguing, or the subject of secret societies wouldn't turn up in books and films so often, would it? So why are we so fascinated with them? We're attracted to the mystery of the unknown, I think. And humans love to feel a part of an exclusive group. It's the whole us versus them thing. Right. It gives people a sense of camaraderie, but also power, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Sarah Henstra noted in her article, Cliques, Clubs, and Cults, The Treacherous Allure of Belonging, that the more secretive and arcane the rites of initiation and membership, the greater our fascination. She references Sigmund Freud's 1921 study, Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, where he stated that groups possess a mind different from the individual minds of its members, like hive mind. Allowing this group mind to stand in for one's own involves a huge compromise. We get a powerful emotional connection to a common idea or leader, And in return, we give up our self-consciousness, our personal authority and status, and our privacy. These are feelings akin to being under hypnosis or in love, where we become uncritical, impulsive, and wide open to suggestion. Pretty scary, huh? Yeah. Concerning, but very interesting. Yeah. These societies really emphasize that feeling of belonging to something bigger, something important, and something that maybe not all people are privy to. As is explained in The Benefits and Burdens of Keeping Other Secrets in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, keeping a secret is intensely bonding because the act of having someone confide in us is an act of intimacy. It makes us feel special. Oh, I can see that. And if you are an individual who's lonely, missing something from your life, or you happen to be going through a rough patch or whatever the circumstances, I imagine the allure of belonging to a group that makes you feel special might be quite powerful. Absolutely. I think people think it's a privilege to belong to some of these societies because of the exclusivity too. Mm -hmm. I know in my high school, I was a member of a sorority. It was considered a big deal to be asked to join, even if you were asked to join only because your big brother had some pull. I can't believe you had sororities (laughs) in high school, Walker. Yeah, there are only a couple in the province, but yeah, we did. Wow, you were like the top of the top. Uh, Not quite. Well, they were lucky to have you, big brother with pull or not. Being asked to join a club with limited membership is definitely perceived as a privilege for a select elite. Just some of the private social clubs here in Toronto, Canada operate this way. You have to be sponsored by a current member, be vetted in order to be sure that you'll be a good fit, and then you're in, after you pay, of course. I imagine that the more exclusive, secretive, and elite a society is perceived to be, the greater the yearning to belong. Ian Smith, the author of the 2000 book, The Ancient Nine, was himself chosen to join the prestigious Delphic Club at Harvard in the late 1980s. The Delphic Club was established by J.P. Morgan in the late 1880s. It has some pretty notable alumni, including Matt Damon and the Aga Khan. Smith noted the distinction between fraternities and secret societies at big schools like Harvard and Yale. He said, secret societies are more formal and tend to be more elegant than fraternities and sororities. They just have a lot more money. It's interesting to note, too, that Smith, being an African-American, reflects that he didn't fit the typical stereotype of that secret society at Harvard at the time. He joined because he was curious. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? But there isn't just emotional or psychological gratification that comes with membership of one of these societies. There are real financial and social advantages, too. Now I could see that. It is who you know, right? Absolutely. Being a member of an elite group offers you access to people in the positions of power, which can ultimately lead to financial gains or preferential treatment. According to Adam Parfrey, during the Civil War, a number of soldiers from North and South carried on them proof of their Masonic membership, which was supposed to secure them good treatment from the enemy. I think that's a really neat historical example. 
It is a really neat historical example. Thank you very much, Walker. <laughs> Having experienced the inner workings of one of the most exclusive university secret societies, Ian Smith notes that the intimacy of these clubs allows you to have access to extremely powerful people who are not powerful while you are undergraduates. But when you get out of school and they become the head of different commissions in the government, they become CEOs, they become big partners of law firms, you are dealing with some pretty heavy people. And because you are a club member, you have direct access to them. Now, what is the relationship between secret societies like the one Ian Smith belonged to at Harvard and cults? I often think people get the two confused, and it's not surprising as they do often have a lot in common in how they operate. Perhaps cults are the most secretive of all these secret societies. Yeah, perhaps. Although the inner workings of cults can be secretive, it's my impression that members of secret societies have a lot more autonomy than those who are in a cult. Right. Secret society members are not typically financially, mentally, and emotionally indebted to the group. There is often an aspect of extreme coercion and control in cults that make it very, very difficult to extricate oneself. We are honored to speak with Dr. Yanya Lalich today. Dr. Lalich is a foremost expert on cults and coercion, charismatic authority, power relations, ideology and social control, and issues of gender and sexuality. She is a professor emerita of sociology at the California State University, Chico, and the author of several books on the subject of cults, including most recently, Escaping Utopia, Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out, and Starting Over. Dr. Lalich is also the founder and CEO of the Lalich Center on Cults and Coercion. Welcome, Dr. Lalich. Thank you so much for joining us today at At Home and Abroad. Thank both of you for having me and for being willing to chase me down all these, I don't know if it's been months, at least it's been weeks. <laughs> it's been weeks, but to no fault of your own. So we're very grateful you're able to make it today. So Thank let's you. start with the word cult. It's a very, very evocative term. Maybe you could describe for us, for our listeners, what constitutes a cult in contemporary society. Okay. First of all, a cult uh, always has a, an authoritarian leader who is most often um, a narcissist, um, sometimes what's called a malignant narcissist, which means they're especially evil and harmful. And they're often considered charismatic. And that's a whole other issue we can maybe talk about later. But the, the leader is generally the, the founder of the belief system and, you know, starts promoting this belief system. So the second feature for me is what I call the transcendent belief system. And that means that it's a belief system that offers you the answer to everything, your past, the present, and the future, right? Right. And an important aspect of the belief system is that it follows an, a philosophy that believes in the end justifies the means. So whenever you have an end justifies the means philosophy, that basically means that anything goes, right? You can be asked to do anything. And as long as they're telling you it's for a greater goal, you're expected to comply. And that's where a lot of trouble comes in. And then the final two characteristics for me are what I call the systems of control and the systems of influence. So first of all, the, the control mechanisms are basically the things that are very overt, you know, kind of the, the known rules and regulations of the group, right? And that could be, you know, it'll vary with each group, but it could be what you wear, what you're supposed to eat or not eat, who you marry, where you live, how many kids you should have or not have, how you should raise those kids, where you work, et cetera, et cetera. It's the obvious stuff. The systems of influence are are in a way far more subtle, and I believe actually far more effective than the, than the control mechanisms. The systems of influence are the social psychological mechanisms that are used through the indoctrination program that essentially prey on the members' emotions, right? Guilt, shame, fear, love, anger, et cetera. So these are all things, I mean, not speaking about kids who were born in cults, but for, for adult recruits, right? These are all things we've dealt with our whole life, right? We know what fear is. We know, 
but they 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 know exactly how to push your buttons so that mm -hmm. you comply over and over and over again. And a lot of it is based on fear. Um, so over time, uh, the person becomes almost like a little microcosm of the cult because they have completely been been induced to buy into this belief system, have complete and total obedience and loyalty to the leader and follow whatever orders they're given. And of course, the added factor is that there's almost always some type of exploitation, whether that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, or financial abuse. Right. They're, they're very good at exploiting vulnerabilities within people. So yes, finding those, those um, mechanisms by which they can really induce shame or fear or, you know, that kind of a very heightened level of insecurity and uncertainty. So they want to rely on the structure of the cult. Right, exactly. And, you know, being vulnerable, there's nothing wrong. It's not that there's something wrong with you that, that you're vulnerable. We're all vulnerable a thousand times in our lives, if not millions, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're vulnerable when it's raining outside. I've been very vulnerable the last. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, we're vulnerable if we're if we've just moved to a new town or we just graduated from college or we just got a divorce or our dog just died or you know any number of things. So um I don't ever want to give the impression that there's something wrong with people that they have these vulnerabilities and that that, that those vulnerabilities are able to be preyed upon um because that's just typical human behavior. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm, definitely. So how prevalent are cults today? <laughs> well, I can certainly tell you I've been busier than I've ever been in my 30-some years of, of doing this work. There are every kind of cult imaginable. Uh, you know, I always make this joke. I've, if you want, I'll find you a chocolate chip cookie cult, right? I mean, there's just like, <laughs> it does, it absolutely has nothing to do with religion, which is what a lot of people think. But there's every every imaginable type of cult and, and cult leader, men and women. And since the pandemic, we've seen the rise of internet-based cults. And so that's a fairly new phenomenon. Before that, we always had what I now call the, the kind of run-of-the-mill brick-and-mortar cults, right? You, like you knew where the cult was, you knew who the leader was, you knew where their compound was or where their centers were or whatever, right? So it was much easier to follow what they're doing, to make an analysis of, of what they're doing or of the leader. Whereas with the internet-based cults, you don't always know that. It's much more amorphous. So if we look at something like QAnon, you know, supposedly there was this guy who was QAnon or this guy and his son or who knows, right? And same with the anti-vaxxer movement. Um, it, both of those things have created the same sense of community that, that a brick and mortar cult does for people but you don't always know like who the leader is right it one mm -hmm. you know one month it might be some cuckoo radio host right and then he dies of covid and so then someone else takes over right and so exactly. it's it's much harder to get a grip on it that's fascinating and i would imagine that a lot of people wouldn't have ever even connected qAnon and the anti-vaxer group to to being a cult oh absolutely they, you know? they function absolutely the same way that's really really fascinating so you yourself were a cult member for about 10 years are you comfortable sharing with us a little bit about what that experience has meant to you and yeah. in your work and your life? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to keep it short, <laughs> but it was about 10 and a half years of my life. I was 30 years old when I joined. I had already had a college degree. I had had a Fulbright fellowship after college. I traveled. I lived in Spain. I lived in France. I mean, I was not like a young, naive kid, which is, again, one of the myths that people think about who gets into cults. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I was actually new in San Francisco at the time, and this was in the mid-70s. And I was, um, I was always politically minded and, and sort of left-leaning. And so I was new in town. I met some people. They all seemed like good people. And I got asked to join a study group, which I didn't know was the front for the organization. 
Um, I eventually got asked to join that organization, and I did. I had I really had no clue what I was joining. I just thought these were really good, serious people, and two of my best friends were joining at the same time. So now we kind of joke and say, "Well, if you hadn't have joined, I wouldn't have joined." So you know, and that and that's true for a lot of people. It most cults recruit through friendship networks. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, because you trust your friends. Exactly. Yeah. More than two thirds are recruited by a friend, a family member, or a coworker. So, you know, that's how it works. But anyway, we were a very restrictive, basically Marxist-Leninist disciplined organization. We had to take on new names. We couldn't tell anybody we were in the organization. We weren't even supposed to know each other's real names. Um, we worked 20 hour days, seven days a week, month after month, year after year. That is intense. It was intense. Um, yeah. the leader was a, was an alcoholic megalomaniac narcissist, very difficult to be around. Um, I was almost always from the beginning in high leadership and in the inner circles. So I spent a lot of time around the leader, which was very awful and very traumatic, Anyway, it was, you know, we did do, in the beginning, we were secretive and underground, um, but then we we surfaced and we did do a lot of political work uh, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, always with front groups. We rarely talked about the fact that there was this secret communist organization. We had very strict security rules and and it was hard. It was really, it was like not a happy life. And of course we were told, there's this old quote from Chairman Mao that says the revolution isn't a tea party, right? Which basically means this isn't going to be fun. It's like, not going to be fun. Yeah. Right. So you don't complain, like you signed up for this, right? And, and so they had all these ways uh, to keep you tethered to the reins. So I got out. I was almost 41 when I got out and I felt like a brain dead 15 year old. I can imagine that is a long time. How did, how did you, how did you manage to extricate yourself? Well, that's a whole other long story, but basically, (laughs) (laughs) um, essentially what happened is that we finally had our revolution and we overthrew our leader. Um, fantastic. Right. So that's the right kind of revolution. Right. If people want to know more of the details, a lot of it's in my book, Bounded Choice. Um, But essentially, most of us who were still in at that point, who were full time cadre uh, militants, uh, were pretty burned out. You know, we Mm -hmm. were all like burned out. Those of us who were around the leader were just exhausted and did everything we could to keep her away from the regular membership. And So what happened is she left the country at one point to go to Bulgaria because that was her dream communist society, um, which I've since gone to Bulgaria and my tour guide would certainly not agree with her (laughs) about (laughs) what a dream world it was at that time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she was out of the country. And so those of us in leadership called together all the members and we met in our print shop. We had a big print shop which is one of the ways we earned money. And um, we told everybody what was going on behind the scenes. And of course, it took almost two weeks to convince people that we were telling the truth. You know, they thought we were just trying to have a coup or something. And so then once everybody realized, oh my God, you know, then all these stories started pouring out about how people were selling their blood to be able to pay their dues and people didn't see their children or, you know, one spouse got expelled and they never even knew what happened to that person. You know, all these horror stories were coming out. And then the night before she returned, we took a vote and we voted unanimously to expel her and to dissolve the organization. And so at at that point, there were about, I'd say about 125 of us. Um, At times, our front groups had thousands of people, but the inner core. um, So yeah, we all got out at the same time and we helped each other with, you know, clothes and resumes and trying to get jobs and just getting your feet back on the ground after being immersed in this for for 11 years plus. Yeah, that's incredible that 125 people were able to come together and and overthrow this very, mm-hmm. very powerful, yeah. probably very charismatic person who who created this. Organization. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think it's 
it says something about where we were all at at that point. Um, yeah. That people just couldn't take it anymore. And even the people at lower levels, I mean, I, I would say those of us in, in leadership experienced actually far worse traumas than some of the general members who basically just did regular, you know, street work or whatever, but, um, but they too were exhausted. I mean, nobody mm -hmm. was happy. You were all burnt out and, and it sounds like at the higher levels, um, abused yes. very, quite severely. Yeah. So you said that you joined this organization with your friends. Um, what do cults look for in a candidate for, for recruitment? What does that process look like? They look for um, smart people. They look for educated people in most cases. Um, they look for uh, someone who can bring in connections, uh, you know, people who will lend legitimacy to the group. Right. They look for people who can fundraise. They look for good workers. So this idea that it's only stupid, weird, crazy, lazy people who get into cults is the exact opposite. I mean, cults don't want stupid, weird, crazy, lazy people, right? <laughs> right. The, the point is you're there to take care of the cult leader and to run the cult's businesses or internal operations or whatever. The cult's not there to take care of you. Uh, I mean, at one point we we had someone who was working with us at, at kind of one of the outer levels, but you know, she 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 was a bit of a troubled individual, and and the leader said, you know, oh, get rid of her, get rid of her. You know, she's just going to be a pain in the butt. Right. And so we just told her, sorry, this isn't for you. Yeah, because you don't really need a loose cannon, exactly. Especially if you have, if you're trying to maintain security and secrecy. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't want to, you know, you don't want to deal with doctors and hospitals. And I mean, the Unification Church used to do that as well, where they would. Uh, if somebody sort of had a breakdown or something, they would literally just drop them in front of a, the doors of a mental hospital or a hospital and just drive away. And and in reality, cult leaders are actually pretty lazy. They're the lazy, crazy ones. <laughs> and so, Absolutely. You know, getting so, everybody to do their bidding. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A keystone of narcissism. Mm -hmm. So do all cults or most cults share a common pattern of organization or hierarchy like you were describing? Yes. I mean, any any cult worth its salt, so to speak, will set up a very good internal structure uh, to keep the operation going and to keep it growing. I mean, I've been doing this for a lot of years, but even early on, like once you start looking at cults in depth, you, you see these patterns across the board. It doesn't matter what kind of cult it is. In fact, my doctoral dissertation was a comparative study, uh, and that's my book, Bounded Choice, is a user-friendly version of that. But it was a comparative study of the group I was in and the Heaven's Gate cult. Now, if you remember, those are the people who committed suicide waiting for the UFO to take them to what they believed was the next level above human. And so you would think, okay, there can't be two more different cults, right? You've mm -hmm. got this sort of new agey UFO based idea. And then you've got this down to earth, you know, and heaven's gate wanted to get away from this world. They hated this world. And meanwhile, you've got this like solid Marxist organization who loves the people, you know, we're going to save the people. And so you'd think, how, how in the world could they be the same? And yet, when you take them apart, you see absolutely the same things. They're, they're just perhaps called something different in each group. For example, in my book, in the back, there are some charts where I put the different aspects and I show how my cult did it, how Heaven's Gate did it. I use that a lot now when I work with survivors. I say, take that chart and then make a new column and put in how your cult did that. And it's very helpful You've even mentioned uh, that there are like one-on-one -on -one cults that just oh, yes. involve like two people. And, mm -hmm. and, and again, these still can share these same commonalities, right. even with a large, right. you know, group with thousands and thousands of people. Right. Yeah, you absolutely. There is a lot of that. I mean, we have a lot of people coming to us who've been like in a therapy cult, like been abused in some way by their therapist who believes they're, you know, they've got the perfect answer to this person. You know, it's, it's very much like a domestic violence situation, only mm -hmm. the, the slight difference 
for me in, in calling something a one-on-one -on -one cult rather than just domestic violence is that there's usually some type of belief system attached, right? Or right. that the the person, the dominant person, you know, thinks they're God or thinks they're, you know, this incredibly special human being, um, which doesn't always happen in a, in a domestic violence situation. It's just plain old domestic violence. Um, mm -hmm. But when you have that added component, and, and there are also many family cults, um, you know, where one parent or the other, or maybe the grandparent are, are running the whole family, just like a cult. You, you've said that cult behavior is human behavior. Can you explain for us the similarities that abusive relationships share with cult behavior? Now that we're, you mentioned domestic abuse situations, but, you know, if we're talking about abusers, what are they sharing right. in common? Well, probably the most common thing is the, the whole point of cult recruitment and cult indoctrination is to attack the self, right? To kind of take you apart, get you to not trust yourself, not trust your instincts, don't trust anyone else, just the cult leader. You know, other people in even other people in the group can't be trusted because they might turn you in or they might be doing wrong things and you don't want to be associated with them. So that kind of attacking of the self is exactly what happens in domestic relationships, right? The, the abusive partner makes you feel stupid, makes you feel ashamed, blames everything on you. You're constantly apologizing. You're saying, you know, oh, you know, if only I were a better wife, then he wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm the one who's always provoking these episodes. It's, it's basically the same thing. It's the, it's attacking the self so that you essentially are completely dependent on that other person and on that other person's view of you, right? Right, which is making it difficult to escape. Yes, exactly. In, in Speaking of which, in your book, Escaping Utopia, Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out and Starting Over, which I read, you describe how the experience of cult membership is different from those who did not willingly choose to join the cult, which I found really an interesting perspective. Can you explain for our listeners how the experience is unique? So if you're born in a cult, in most cases, you're not going to experience any other reality, but the reality, the very closed reality of the cult world. Most cults, and this is one of my pet peeves, most cults homeschool and the whole homeschooling thing is so unregulated. And so mostly, in most cases, those kids, all they're taught really are the, the words of the leader, right? Or the documents written by the leader or listen to his speeches, right? They're not taught math and science and, you know, and even the ones who go to regular schools uh, out in the community. So for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Those kids go to school, um, but they can't participate in any of the holidays or any of the activities. They're not supposed to have any friends that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses, so they can't make friends while they're in school. They can't participate in the sports and other activities. They go to school and they come right back home. Mm -hmm. So there again, they're ostracized, right? They're usually people know and they get made fun of, which isn't right, but is what happens to them. The whole thing of education is one big aspect of that. But also, if you've read the work of Eric Erickson, uh, who was a psychologist, we all go through these, what he called the stages of development, right? And, and he breaks it down by years. And each of those stages, you're supposed to accomplish certain things so that you kind of graduate to the next stage. Well, none of that can happen normally in a cult environment because everything's orchestrated. So you don't, as, as someone born or raised in a cult, or even someone who joins at a young age, you don't go through the normal developmental processes. You don't, you aren't allowed to develop your own identity, right? Which is what happens in the teen years. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that input and reality checks and all of the things we, the skills and different things we learn as kids growing up in, you know, quote, the regular world, that all adds to who we become and who our person, you know, what our personalities become. Yeah, I, I remember when I was reading your book, the story about the hairdryer, 
where there was one individual who had left a cult and she had seen a hairdryer, I think being used in a movie or a TV show. And she went out and got one and she was reading the instructions on how to figure it out and, and try and use it. But, and, and she had said that this is just one example of right. many things I had to figure out, but for most of them, they were like, many people were lost. Right. Out. Completely lost. They just didn't yeah. know what to do. No driver's license, no nothing, right. no ID. No birth certificate. Sometimes they don't even know their real name. They don't know if there's other relatives out there that they can go to. Yeah. They have no resources. I mean, as a society, we offer nothing for these people. Yeah. And even if they go to, a, and this is for adult members as well, even if they go to a domestic violence shelter, they're turned away because they don't qualify. And it's just criminal. I mean, there are so many suicides and really difficult cases of, of these kids when they leave. When I did the interviews for that book, I think I interviewed 16, eight or 69 people. Mm -hmm. I would get off the phone and just flop on my bed and cry and cry and cry. You know, I mean, on the phone, you have to be like this objective researcher. And then I'd get off the phone. I'm like, oh my Jesus, God, I can't believe what I just yeah. heard. The worst is the absolutely rampant sexual abuse of the children, yeah. also physical abuse for yeah. sure, but it's just rampant. And because they're not part of regular society, nobody sees the bruises, nobody finds out what's going on and it's all kept hidden and it's generational and it's just tragic. It's tragic. Yeah. I was very surprised by that. And um, yeah, yeah, that that was, that was hard to read. Escape and extraction from cults has it it's very popularized in the media and highlighted in television lately. What is the process of people breaking free? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you've made the decision finally, and I'm sure it's a long time coming, right? It's it's right. not an easy one to make. Right. But how do people take that path and and what are they facing? Well, the way I see it is that everybody in a cult. It has doubts, has questions, even the true believers. I had plenty of doubts and plenty of questions. Some Sometimes I actually voiced them and then I'd get put on trial and chastised for hours on end. But so you have all these doubts and there's no way you can express them. So you, this is the metaphor I use is the shelf in the back of the head. So you, all these things get stored on the shelf in the back of your head. And finally something happens that's just like one thing too many and the shelf breaks. Now, when the shelf breaks, you probably won't think, oh, I'm in a cult, I better get out. But you'll think something's wrong here. This is maybe not in my best interest, or this isn't really what I signed up for, or whatever, right? And then you have to, if you're lucky, then you'll start to figure out, how do I get out of here? And how that happens, again, is going to vary with each cult, whether you're off on a compound somewhere in the middle of nowhere, or whether you're in the middle of the city, like we were, we all lived in, in apartments in San Francisco. But you have to figure out how to do that. And that's why I tell people, families or friends who have someone in a cult, like never cut that person off. Never. They, went, they may cut you off, but don't ever cut them off. No matter what you do, try to stay in communication, convey to them that you're a safe haven. If ever they decide to change their mind, you're there for them. You're not going to question them. You're not going to say, see, I told you so. You shouldn't have joined that group, right? You're just going to let them decompress on your couch if that's what they want to do. And then when, when someone leaves, I mean, depending again on their age and the length of their experience, different things can happen. I mean, as we were saying earlier, there aren't any resources, but if they're lucky, they'll figure out how to get an education. Maybe they'll find a social worker who can help them. Maybe they'll find my nonprofit organization and get some help that way. Um, you know, but it's it's a lot because it has to do with just basic life needs, you know, right? Food, clothes, work, whatever. And that depends on the skills they may have or not have. I mean, I was lucky because I was told to build the publishing house in my cult. And I did, I learned how to do that. And I had connections in New York and all around. So when I got out, I was able to go to those people and say, hey, hire me, <laughs> right? Um, but not everyone has that opportunity. And so it's both very practical as well as psychological, as well as philosophical. You know, mm -hmm. People need to deal with, okay, what do I believe in now? How, how do I do that? What do you know? What do, 
where do I go? Where do I live? How do I live? Um, it's huge. It's a, and and it actually, I think for many people, knowing you have to face that is probably why a lot of people don't leave. And also knowing in many cases, you may lose your entire family. You may lose your children. You'll lose everything you ever knew, your community, your your identity. And that's like, that's huge. That's a big step for people to take. Can you give me a rough idea how many people or the percentage of people who leave end up going back? Hardly any. Really? Hardly any. I mean, I think, you know, if you, I don't, I don't know if I said it in Escaping Utopia, but I asked, that was one of the questions I asked all of them, uh, 68 or whatever it was. And I said, you know, as bad as it was out there, did you ever think of going back? And only one person said that, yes, he had had those thoughts. Most people don't go back. Now, if they don't get the proper, what, what, what we call psychoeducation, if they don't get a proper understanding of what happened to them and why and how it happened, they could end up joining a different group. And those are people we call cult hoppers. Um, so I've had you know people come to me that were in four or five different things before they finally realized there's, there's something wrong with my decision-making process here, right? Wow, I would um, never have thought of that, but I could see that happening for yeah, sure. Yeah, so getting the proper education is really important. So how do we protect ourselves and our children, thinking particularly teens from being candidates for recruitment, especially with the existence of the online cults? And you said that you know there's such an increase in the number, um, especially right. since COVID. It's a right. big concern. It's a big concern. I think for adults, it's a little easier to protect yourself because we should be good consumers. I mean, the problem is our society, at least here in America, uh, I don't know if Canada is exactly the same, but this is a very quick fix society, right? Everybody's looking for that quick answer. You know, they don't want to do years and years of therapy. They want to go to a life coach who's going to make their world wonderful all of a sudden, right? And so what adults need to do, and even teens of a certain age, is like, don't jump at the first thing that comes along. Slow down. Do your research. As much as there are cults recruiting on the internet, there is also scads and scads of information on the internet. So check things out, see what people who've been part of it say, ask a lot of questions. If your questions get turned back on you, you know that's not a good sign, right? If, you, if everybody's on and on and on about this special leader, forget it, probably you don't wanna go there. If you're being asked to sign a waiver that says, oh, if you come to our five-day retreat, we're not responsible for anything that happens to you, run the other way because probably something's gonna happen to you, right? <laughs> So, so there are things that, you know, we should just all learn to be better consumers about it. You know, I always say you wouldn't buy the first car you see, right? So treat it like you're buying a car, right? right. For kids, it's harder, I think, because we're not allowed to do much education in the schools. Whenever I have tried to get into schools, like to give presentations or whatever, they're, they're always afraid you're going to offend someone's religion, right? And I always tell them, I can talk about cults for, you know, till I'm blue in the face, and I don't even ever have to ever mention religion. But there's all there's that taboo thing, at least here in the States. So it makes it difficult to get into the schools. Um, you know, the university level is a little different. I have done some presentations that way. But And there actually is a woman who was a Mormon, and she wrote a whole series of books for kids. There's nine books in the series, and her kids actually did all the drawings, all the illustrations, and they're really cute little books. Um, her name is Gretchen Day, okay. and they are for sale on Amazon. You know, I think all of us who've been there are trying to figure out things we can do for the younger generation, and, and it is difficult. I mean, even at my center where we work with people, we, we don't let anyone into our groups or our courses who are under 18. I mean, we just can't do that. I, you know, some of the documentaries these days actually are pretty, pretty good. Okay. And I think they are beginning to help educate the public. And um, I would watch those with my kids if I had teenagers, like this is what can happen. Okay, well, that's good to know. So, so much to be done in terms of education and then support for those right. that are trying to leave then. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Lelich. You can discover more about Dr. Lelich and her work on her website, www.yanyalelich.com, or follow her on Facebook at, at Yanya Lelich Resources or on Twitter at, at Yanya underscore Lelich. Her books can be found to purchase on Amazon. Thank you again. Oh, thanks so much. Well, that was a very eye-opening conversation. Mm -hmm. So we've established that cults and secret societies are different, but secret societies can also harbor unpleasantness or socially unacceptable patterns of operation. Right. In Canada, actually, there is the Episcopon at Trinity College at the University of Toronto. Did you Have you ever heard about it, Walker? I have heard talk about the Episcopon, but I thought it was an urban myth. Yeah, apparently not. The group began in 1858 as a student newspaper that archived events at Trinity College. Members are said to have included the late former Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bill Graham, and Adrian Clarkson, the former Governor General of Canada. Wow. So what is this powerful little society all about? Well, apparently they hold meetings that include activities such as reading poems, making jokes, often satirizing Trinity students and singing. The college, though, severed ties with the group in 1992 based on reports of sexist and racist behavior and harassment of students, pushing some even to the brink of attempted suicide. Did you know about this society before this episode? No, I have never heard of it, but I've never been a sorority or exclusive club kind of gal. You're my people walker, but <laughs> the, not so much my people. Oh, and that's an exclusive group in itself, you right? You got it. You got it. <laughs> so what about in England? With the importance placed on tradition in a country as old as England, I have to imagine that there are many old secret societies there that exist. I think you would be right about that. There are many secret student societies on English campuses, two of which are the Bullingdon Club at Oxford University and the Apostles at the University of Cambridge. British Prime Ministers David Cameron and Boris Johnson are Bullingdon Club alumni, which started in the 1780s as a club for those interested in hunting and cricket. It is a male-only fine dining society, which is known for their furniture-smashing antics and fine dining with prostitutes performing sex acts during dinner. What? Are you serious? Harris? I am totally serious. Can you believe it? Gross, right? New members could expect their bedrooms to be trashed by their fellow comrades, and they also often destroyed the rooms that they dined in. According to one woman who scouted members in the 1980s, she said that they destroyed a large galleried room which had just been refurbished with expensive wood paneling. Every piece of furniture that could have been broken was broken. Every liquid sprayed around the room. The paneling was cracked and everything was piled in a heap in the middle of the room. And the college door to Magdalen College was smashed to pieces. What fun is that? It sounds lawless. It sounds horrendous. Elitism at its worst. In 2013, Johnson said the club was a truly shameful vignette of almost superhuman undergraduate arrogance, toffishness, and twittishness. But at the time, you felt it was wonderful to be going around swanking it up. There we go. Yeah. So what about the apostles at the University of Cambridge? Are they as degenerate? Well, the apostles were established in 1830. This group consisted of undergraduate students that met every Saturday night at midnight discussing ethics, truth, and God while eating sardines on toast, which, if that was a requisite for joining, you could just count me out. <laughs> a little different vibe there. <laughs> totally different. But this is kind of weird. Those who were being considered for their membership were referred to as embryos, the members as apostles, and members who had graduated angels. Little God complex much. Mm. Notes were written in a leather book and important papers were kept in a trunk called The Ark. Members, apparently, were sworn to a vow of secrecy. In fact, three Russian spies from the infamous Cambridge Five during the Cold War were apostles. Bizarre. So let's go back to the Skull and Bone Society that you touched on at the beginning, Harris. What are they all about? I know that a lot of books and articles have been written about this group. I actually purchased a book about the history of Skull and Bones for my brother for Christmas, which he quite enjoyed. Wow, I'd like to read that book. Yeah, people are very interested in Skull and Bones, perhaps because the group is well-established and boasts some pretty powerful alumni, or bonesmen, as they are called. So is it an all-men's group? 
Yeah, originally the members were elite white men, but this isn't the case anymore. So how exclusive is this group? Apparently only 15 juniors are tapped or chosen to become lifetime members every year. So pretty exclusive. So does tapping refer to tapping on the shoulder as one might think? Yeah, it's the process of selection. Yale students used to assemble in the college yard and members would walk around and tap the new potential members on the shoulder walk them to their dorm, and ask them in private to join. Apparently, this isn't done anymore. Invitations are sent by email or letters under the door. Right. So where do they hold their meetings? With a name like Skull and Bones, I've got to think that they don't just meet at a local cafe. They do not. In fact, <laughs> they just wouldn't cut it, I don't no, think. No, <laughs> it wouldn't be cool enough. They meet at the tomb. Ah, the Mm -hmm. tomb. How intriguing. Mm -hmm. The tomb is the name given to a building located at 64 High Street. But just to keep the mystery alive, this building has no windows. Of course it doesn't. Right. (laughs) But it does have a landing pad for a private helicopter on the roof, according to Alexander Robbins' book, Secrets of the Tomb, Skull and Bones, the Ivy League, and the Hidden Paths of Power. Ah, that speaks to the privilege and wealth behind those walls too, doesn't it? It sure does. Well, you might think that Skull and Bones might be the wealthiest of the secret societies on Yale campus, but in fact, according to Business Insider, it's only the fifth richest of the 41 societies on campus. In 2015, they had assets just above $4 million. Come on. Are you serious? I'm entirely serious. But many schools have actually tried to dissociate themselves with these societies, like I mentioned with Trinity College, and tried to weaken the appeal of the membership among their students. Some universities have even instituted rules that limit student freedoms if they join. Ian Smith noted that you can't be the captain of a varsity team or hold a position in student government or even be recommended for a school scholarship if you are a member. But despite all of that, he was pretty sure that these secret societies would continue. The pull is just too strong. Well, maybe this will cause these secret societies to go more underground and become more secretive even. So we've chatted a lot about campus clubs, but what about elsewhere? Well, according to Parfree, secret societies have had many purposes and have taken many shapes over time. Labor unions, business groups, rural agrarian organizations, religious and occult organizations, sobriety groups, drinking groups, immigrants, anti-immigrant organizations, all of these could fall under the secret society umbrella depending on their structure and organization. Wow, the list goes on. Mm -hmm, I would imagine that the mafia would be classified as a secret society, right? Oh, for sure. The general public has very little knowledge of the inner workings of the mafia, but there is definitely an initiation a code that members abide by, and of course, a hierarchy. Honestly, there were so many secret societies to choose from for this episode. Before we dig into two of the most famous, I thought we should talk a little bit about a few lesser known ones. Ever hear about the Independent Order of Oddfellows? No, I haven't. Are they still around today? They are. Members are called Oddfellows, and they uphold friendship, love, and truth. Winston Churchill was an odd fellow. It was founded during the 18th century. It's a pretty welcoming group and is open to all people, regardless of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and national origin. I read that in 1922, there were 2,676,000 and some odd members, which at the time outnumbered the Freemasons even. The popularity of the group is said to have dropped during the Depression when it was more difficult to afford membership. Well, that sounds more inclusive than exclusive. True. And then there are the Molly Maguires. The Molly Maguires, they have got to be Irish. Good guess. Actually, this group was active in Ireland, Liverpool, and the eastern U.S. They were best known for their activism in Pennsylvania. Members are said to have disguised themselves in women's clothing while committing arson and death threats. Whoa. 20 suspected members were actually put on trial for the deaths of 24 coal mine foremen and supervisors. The group fell apart after being discovered and ultimately 20 members were hung. Yikes, that's not a very happy ending. I know, right? So we can't talk about secret societies without discussing the Freemasons. The Freemasons are a very old secret society which evolved out of the Stonemasons Guild originating in the 1700s. Cool. It is truly ancient. Some famous members of the Freemasons included George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, Walt Disney, Louis Armstrong, 
John Wayne, and even Winston Churchill and Mozart. Wow, interesting. Churchill, again, he was quite the joiner of clubs, eh? (laughs) I guess he was. Busy guy. (laughs) And the Freemasons still exist today, right? They do. One statistic found stated that there are currently 5 million members around the world. The oldest Freemason lodge is located in London, England. It's not technically a religion, but they believe in a grand architect of the universe. Whoa. Men over 21 years of age can become members, and there is a separate organization for women called the Order of the Eastern Star. Wow, the Grand Architect of the Universe? That's pretty impressive. I have never heard of the Order of the Eastern Star, though. I hadn't either. Apparently, you have to ask to join, and this is supported by their recruiting slogan, All you have to do is ask. Hmm. Psychologist Heiko Ernst said it isn't just like joining a club, though. You have to be chosen to join. You have to be in good character and reputation. And you must believe in the existence of a supreme being. Now, interestingly enough, you may not know that the Shriners, a group known for conducting extensive charity work, were founded by the Freemasons in 1870 in New York City. I did not know that. Now, I love Dan Brown. We kind of touched on him before, the author of Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci Code. His work brought the Illuminati front and center into the public consciousness. There is so much mystery and intrigue surrounding that secret society. So, Walker, do they exist or are they fictional? Again, Yes and no. Oh, okay. Do tell. (laughs) Well, there certainly was a secret society called the Order of the Illuminati, and it was established by Adam Weishaupt in Bavaria in 1776. The group consisted of non-religious members who valued free thinking and anti-religious government. They were said to have taken inspiration from the Freemasons in terms of adopting rituals and group hierarchy. The society was said to have dissolved after secret societies were made illegal in 1787 by Carl Theodore, Duke of Bavaria. Okay, so that's the yes, but what about the no? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, some people claim that the Illuminati just got pushed underground, and the mystery surrounding the secret society still is alive and well. Some people claim that there is a new Illuminati still Mm. functioning today, that there is one government comprised of celebrities and government officials that is currently running the world. This New World Order conspiracy theory believes that people like Beyonce and Jay-Z are members. And if you go further down the conspiracy rabbit hole, some people think that these celebrities even have been replaced with clones. Oh, well, that sounds very logical and sensible. Not? That sounds crazy. It does, but it has a following. I read one statistic that 23% of Americans believe in the Illuminati and the New World Order. That is a huge... Huge percentage of people. I know. Madonna even wrote a song called Illuminati, and Madonna has said that people often accuse me of being a member of the Illuminati, but the thing is, I know who the real Illuminati are, and I know where the word comes from. Well, Madonna, (laughs) you know it all. Stephen Heller for The Atlantic stated that part of the appeal of these societies has long been in their oddball accoutrement. Costumes, banners, voting equipment, hoods, emblem jewelry, and Atlantish hats like the Fez. Sounds like Madonna would fit right in. (laughs) For instance, the Oddfellows are said to have real skeletons which they use during initiations to remind everyone of their mortality. Isn't that lovely? That's odd. Mm -hmm. The skull and bones have the number 322 in their symbol below a skull and crossbones. This is thought to refer to 322 BC, the year Alexander the Great died, or the year the Greek orator Demosthenes died, which symbolizes in Athens the move from democracy to plutocracy, a government run by the wealthy. The Freemasons are recognized by a compass and a square enclosing a capital letter G, but it's a builder square that kind of looks like a right angle or an L shape, not a four-sided square. Right. Now, I've heard experts at MIT state that the G stands for geometry, as the compass is an important tool in geometry, but others claim that the G stands for grand architect of the universe, or God. Of course it does. Now, you can find symbolism everywhere in the temples that Freemasons meet. The most notable symbol is the pentagram, which stands for wisdom, justice, strength, moderation, and diligence. The temple is based on the Temple of Solomon from Jerusalem. 
If these are the images that these groups let the outside world see, it sort of makes you wonder what is going on behind the scenes, the inner workings of the societies that we don't see as non-members. Well, exactly. There is so much that we don't know and may never know, unless, of course, we join, Harris. Right. (laughs) No, thank you. We can have our own walker. There are hierarchies within these organizations. For instance, new Freemason members join as apprentices. They then move up the ranks to journeyman and then a master. Members take part in rituals, apparently, and acting as symbolic dying in order to transition to the next level. There are secret handshakes and passwords and oaths that members must take. And in the case of the Masons, there is a vow of silence. Secrets must be kept within the order. Alexandra Robbins notes that Skull and Bones members reportedly offer personal information, including their sexual history, and agree to contribute part of their estates to the club in exchange for financial stability for life. This is done so new members won't sell the club's secrets. Yeah, this is very reminiscent of what Dr. Lalich speaks about in her work. The lines blur a bit between cult-like behavior and these societies, don't they, Walker? They can, yes. Both the Freemasons and the Illuminati also use the Eye of Providence, the eye in a triangle as shown on the U.S. $1 bill. So what's the connection there? Well, the eye itself is a very old symbol. The Egyptians use the Eye of Horus, and the eye often pops up as a Christian symbol in Renaissance art. Hmm. People draw connections from this symbol back to the Illuminati, but historian Stephen C. Bullock states that the symbol was designated for the Freemasons to remind themselves that we are being watched over. Therefore, we need to live up to the standards of not only religion, but also Freemasonry. And in respect to the dollar bill, its purpose was to represent America being watched over by God, America being created under God's watchful eye. And there's some talk that the symbol was purposely chosen by Henry Wallace and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who were themselves Freemasons. I... C. Ah, nice pun, Harris. I thought you would like that one, Walker. (laughs) Just to lighten it up a bit. Conspiracy theories seem to be closely connected to the world of secret society. I suppose there is just so much that is unknown, and the mystery gets people's imaginations activated. I've read that some conspiracies hold Freemasons and the Illuminati responsible for many big world events, such as the French Revolution, the First World War, and even JFK's assassination. Yes, it's similar to that New World Order theory. There are people who genuinely believe that secret societies hold great influence over what happens in the world. Just the fact that 13 of the 39 men who signed the U.S. Constitution were Masons gets people thinking that maybe there is something more to those conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. And the simple fact that a Skull and Bones alumnus was head of the CIA for nearly 20 years has caused people to think that maybe Skull and Bones controls the CIA. Right. Yeah, it's just so hard to know just how much of it is truth and how much is a figment of our collective imagination. Perhaps we'll never know. But as Jean Racine famously said, there are no secrets that time does not reveal. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you. you.